Hey, D, looks like we're back to the 90s. Do you mean the 90s decade or 90s for our temperatures? Uh, probably, probably a little of both. Well, I'm intrigued. Let's go. Welcome to the Garden Angelus, where we talk about flowers, veggies, and all the best dirt. I'm Dee Nash from Guthrie, Oklahoma, where I garden on seven and a half acres out in the country. And I'm Carol Michael from Indianapolis, Indiana. I have a suburban garden measured in square feet. It's about a third of an acre. We call ourselves Gardenangelists because we are evangelists for gardening. We love gardening and we want you to love it too. Yes, we do. And we aren't afraid to spill the beans and tell all of our gardening secrets, the good, the bad, and even the ugly. But that's enough of who, what, when, where. Let's move on to this week's episode. Hello, Dee. Hello, Carol. How does your garden grow? And is it hot out there or what? <laughs> Dee, it's suddenly hot out there. We had a very mild week last week, and I went out. Oh, it's hot out there. <laughs> but last week, I told people I was on the edge with something, and I would tell them this week. Okay. So my flower borders in the back aren't edged with anything except, a you know, a nice straight cut. Mm-hmm. And then I, I decided that I really want to put some edging stone around them. Oh, so pretty. I'm going to measure, and I think I'm going to do something kind of where I use the same kind of block that I have in front, but every whip stitch, I'm going to add a bit of whimsy, like a little, uh, I don't know, cement mouse or something every little Mm -hmm. bit, you know, just to kind of mix it up. So So I did decide that. Wait, wait, for our younger listeners, you're going to have to explain what a whip stitch is. They've never seen. What do you mean? (laughs) What do you mean every whip stitch? That means, you know, like every once in a while. (laughs) Yeah. That's not that odd of a saying, is it? Yeah, it's fairly odd for the modern listener. It is. Because they don't sew. So you do straight stitches and then you do a whip stitch, which is a little bit different stitch every so often. And so that's what you're going to do in your borders. Keep going. Yeah, okay. And then I started trimming some shrubs when it wasn't hot out. Um, and I have some dutsia on the side of the house, and I decided that they are extremely boring. I think they are, and too. And so I think they they might get the final prune, and if it ever cools down, I might rip them out this summer and then this fall plant something nice there. We'll I think see. that sounds like a good idea. I hate dutsia. Now all the people who love dutsia <laughs> are going to come after us, but it is boring. They are not. Nobody loves dutsia. Well, maybe. I don't know. I also, I did get my asters and goldenrod cut back, and I started a bulb order. You <laughs> started it. a bulb order? Oh, I picked order? peas. Yeah, flower bulbs for fall. It, it's June. I know. But I know some bulbs I want, so why not go ahead and place an order, and then surprise! Surprise, they come in they the fall, come. and I think, who's going to plant all these? Yeah, they always come, and they either come when it's too warm, and you can't plant them then, even though they try to get it right, it's hard. And the, Or they come, and the day you decide to plant them is the most blustery, cold, wet day in the world. But, you know, the next spring, you're glad you did it. That's right. And spring, it's worth it. And so that's kind of my garden. I've been, you know, suckering tomatoes. We talked about that last week. I'm not going to re-explain suckering. If you're a regular listener, you know, we what talked- do you do? We talked about it last week pretty extensively, so. Um, We did. There is not much to update because I was out of town most of the week, 
but it looks like my daughter, you know, my daughter watered for me and she called me, I think it was Friday morning and or Saturday morning. And she was like, Oh my gosh, mom over on the North side of the house where I have the Pelargonium theater, something had right. got, she thought it was windblown. She thought it was a storm because we did get rain. It was not a storm. I had her send me pictures and I was like, Oh no, that was a deer because it was a big animal. Oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> and so there were pots that were turned over. There was chair. The chairs were turned over. Somehow it got stuck between the end of the garage and the tomato row, you know, the row of containers and it made a huge mess. So I set things to right. She did somewhat. And then I did somewhat and I need to now repot those in the broken pots, but it was too hot today. I just went around watered things that needed extra water and I'm going to patch things up and then tomorrow morning repot them. So I didn't do much except for just pick up the mess the deer made. Oh, dear. I do want to report that. Uh, you know, I said I have like a vole problem or a chipmunk problem. Something's been digging. Yes. So I I don't want to say how happy I was to see a dead vole laying by the side of a flower belt. Why border, not? But I, I, I gave it a, I put it in the trash. I don't think and the voles I, have a, I don't think the voles have a, um, you know, camaraderie i don't think anybody is out there a cadre of fans so it's okay no be happy go ahead and then then i saw one i saw a hawk take off when i went outside in the back and it had what looked like a vole in its claws and i thought two down i wonder how many dozens more are left out there digging around yeah let's hope you don't have to you know resort to susan's um vole catching wonderfulness but you might you never know yeah. thank you hawks but that's a good reminder i'm glad you brought that up because that's why? a good reminder of why we don't use mouse poison in our gardens or rodent right. poison because unfortunately that you know that poison slows down the creatures because it makes them crave water and then they go try to find water and then an owl or a hawk sees them or an eagle if you live down here and then you end up poisoning the very birds that you like. So there you go. There you go. And the big news from last week. Big. The big news, D. Big. We saw, we started a Substack newsletter to share our show notes so that we can type a whole lot more. Yes. So we want everybody to go out to thegardenangelist.substack.com and sign up for a newsletter. And I'll put stuff in our regular show notes so people can find those. Right. So now if you just want the short version, you can go to Buzzsprout. But if you really want to get, you you not only get our notes, but you also get the link to the podcast in, in this version. So they're much more filled right. out. They're entertaining because Carol does most of the work. And uh, <laughs> I think it's something everybody would enjoy because everything that we talk about, all the links, they're all on there. Yeah, they are on there. All right, now I'm going to do a quote so we can get to the flower topic. <laughs> Summer is a promissory note signed in June. It's long days spent and gone before you know it and due to be repaid next January. That's from Hal Borland, who we love his quotes. We do love his quotes. You just need to alter that slightly for Oklahoma because we pay that and we repay it in February because February is our longest grayest month and 
you know, summer. How can that be? It's only 28 days. January's 31. Because it's the cloudiest, longest 28 days on the calendar. All right. On to our flower, which isn't really a flower, although sometimes it does flower. I have no idea what the flower looks like, but we're talking about Artemisia, which is grown for its foliage. Right, because nobody cares about the flower. (laughs) Um, Artemisia is a very big genus. And it, as you researched, it is named for Artemis, the Greek goddess of the moon, wild animals, and hunting. And I did not know that. I didn't know there was a Greek god named Artemis, Greek goddess, I should say. Yeah, I think she's But we came up with this because Darwin Perennials sent me some sun ferns, they call them, which is a type of perennial Artemisia called Artemisia... And I'm going to butcher this species name, Gemellinii, G-M-E-L-I-N-I-I. I think you got that and right. Sunfern Olympia. And they are advertising it, not advertising, I guess, but promoting it as a herbaceous plant to put in the perennial border where you want to bring in maybe an accent plant with a bit of fern-like foliage. Right. And that's why they're calling it sunfern. Um now, I will say a lot of Artemisias, as many people will note, can be invasive. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But these are not invasive, so they won't spread. It's supposed to be a low-maintenance, drought-tolerant, zone 4 hardy Artemisia. Gets about 16 to 18 inches tall. And again, if you want fern-like texture in a sunny border, this would be the plant. How, I'm looking here how tall it grows. So it is, it is for, yeah, it's for the front of the border. Yeah. I'm looking at their website. And so it grows about 14 to 16 inches tall, according to this. And you space them 18 to 24 inches apart. And, um, I like Darwin perennials a lot. I, I don't know. I mean, I would probably where this grows, I would grow tansy, golden tansy, but these are, really good and they're hardy and tansy isn't always hardy so and tansy can be quite invasive uh yes in some places it's not invasive in oklahoma golden tansy which is the aria version is not at all and it does flower in summer this i don't think does anyway keep going no well this would be a good plant to put even in a cutting garden because i think the foliage now i'm looking at something in a little four inch pot so i can't really tell exactly but i think the foliage as it grows will make a nice uh filler for a flower arrangement and usually art i don't know if this one is but usually artemisias have a really nice um scent to them because they're an herb so i don't know if this one's scented or not it has a reddish stem they say but i mean again i'm looking at little trial plants so there are some artemisias that we should warn people about because they're, they're not all the same. And so there's the one that's called Sweet Annie, which is an herb. It's an annual. It's Artemisia annua. Uh, another word is wormwood, but that will easily spread from seed. And so that one is the one that you want to be really careful if you're going to plant it in your garden. Don't let the seeds shatter, as they say, and fall to the ground. or You will never get rid of it. Mm-hmm. 
And then tarragon, the herb. Did you know that that is an Artemisia D? I honestly did not. And I love tarragon, but I've, I don't, I think I've only grown it once and it didn't do much. Um, which it just goes to show where you live makes all the difference. But it does. in some places in North America, it is definitely invasive. And now we're going to get to the one that I hate with a passion. Artemisia vulgaris. Very agata. So, I have that one. I had that one. Yeah, oh so did D. I'm talking about myself like I'm the queen. So did I. Um, that I planted that years ago before I knew about its bad ways and, um, do not plant it. It is the, it is the pits, just the pits. Especially, well, I'm going to say it can be pretty, but even the Missouri Botanical Garden on their website, they tell you that the straight species, the non-variegated is considered a noxious weed in many states. And they got in big red letters, do not plant. So you don't want to plant the variegated one either because the variegated one can revert back to the straight species for one thing. And it is extremely aggressive in Oklahoma gardens. Just it is the worst and it has underground roots and it is, and it is really, really pretty in a four inch pot and people plant it all the time. I find it in people's gardens and I'm like, I please remove that. Because it, it becomes a huge problem. Okay, <laughs> Remove that going. from my site. Yeah, it's Remove horrible. that from my site. We cannot be <laughs> relate. We cannot work together if you have that in there. I do not say things like that. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, I. this is the throwback to the 90s. I planted some in the 90s right after Me I had moved here. I had a little bit of it. And, you know, I... I pull it out whenever I see it, and I'm still pulling it out. And I've been here 25 years, so it is something not to plant. It's like freaking garlic chives here. I will be pulling out garlic chives until the day I die, and then someone will take this over, and they will go, what is this plant that is all over her garden? It was a mistake. That's what it was. So let's go back to be positive. Let's go back to the well-behaved, lovely Artemisias. There's one more we'll talk about, and that's called Silver Mountain, Silver Mound Mount. Artemisia. Artemisia Schmidtiana Silver Mound. Mm-hmm. And it's just a mound of, of silver foliage, gets about a foot tall, definitely front of the border. If you have like a rock garden type area and you want silvery foliage, there's your baby. And I'm going to tell you, if you grow it in Oklahoma, you're going to need to replace parts of it every year because... For some, I think it's because we get all those spring rains that Uh just overwhelm it. So if you want to grow it fine, it was very popular here in the 90s and then kind of died out because it was just too hard to maintain clumps of it. But it is beautiful in the front of the garden. I also, and I may be totally wrong, and it's maybe one that you're not supposed to grow, but I grew Silver King and I grew Silver Queen. And both did really, really both of those did really well here. They're very drought tolerant. One is tall and has beautiful ferny foliage. That's King silver queen is shorter and is more dusty looking. So just do your research before you plant an Artemisia. There you go. So that's enough about Artemisias. Wouldn't you say? Yes, I would. Would you like a flower to flower to topic the next? without a flower? <laughs> yeah. You do the quote. 
In June, as many as a dozen species may burst their buds on a single day. No man can heed all of these anniversaries. No man can ignore all of them. That's by Aldo Leopold. And that's the truth. That is the truth. And he's also a very famous nature writer from up in Wisconsin. Uh, Well worth reading his book, which the name of it, I cannot recall. But, Dee, you came up with this veggie topic. And we we are not the brightest. We're not the brightest, shiniest pennies sometimes. We're pretty We've bright, shiny all these art- pennies. We've been <laughs> writing articles about different vegetables for Family Handyman. And instead mm-hmm. of choosing one of those, which we're like all steeped in now because we've done our homework and written these articles, yeah. you decided that we should talk about Japanese turnips. Well, because and- I think people will want to grow them in the fall. I know I will. I'll be growing them in the fall. So I've been getting Japanese turnips in my CSA. And I can't get enough of them. They, I love homegrown turnips anyway, because the turnips you get in the store are too big and too old and they taste yucky. Um, homegrown turnips taste great, but Japanese turnips taste even better. And, um, they're called, they're also called Hakuriai or Hakuri, probably Hakuri because it's Japanese. And there's another one called Hanona Kabu. And so there's two two types that we're talking about here today, but we're also going to link to another article that talks about 18 different types of turnip at home stratosphere. Um, delicious, thin-skinned, not turnipy tasting, wonderful. And we'll also link to the Chef's Garden book that we both are in love with by Farmer Lee yes. Jones. Because as soon as you said you had these Japanese turnips and they were delicious, I knew, I knew Farmer Lee would, would have, have something it. in the, yeah. yeah. And, and indeed he has a, he also waxes poetic about them and says they're, you know, they're the greatest thing. So. And they can be harvested from pretty small all the way up to like pretty small radish size, round radish size and on uh-huh. up to about a golf ball and just delicious. So. And then you grow them just like you grow any turnip, which here in fall is easy to do. In spring, a little trickier because yeah, depends on what that's, kind of spring. That's true with some of those. You know, not far up the road, there's some turnip fields. Really? Do yeah, you like turnips? I, I like them in some things. I'll tell you, yeah. I had mashed turnips at a oh. Scottish restaurant once. Those were delicious. Yes. I think they mashed call them meats turnip. or something. They yeah, were meats. good. Yeah, I, I think mashed turnips are great, and sometimes they mix them with cauliflower or rutabaga, you know, a different thing together, and with a little butter, they're amazing. But there's a lady on our – our CSA has a Facebook group, and there's a lady who had a dish of them, and she had her little hands around it, like all those Instagram pictures, and she, all she did was steam them and put a little butter and salt and pepper, and she said, I'm in love. And I thought, well, that's that's high praise. But it is so we should get some seeds for these now fall stone turnips. Yeah. While we're doing our bulb orders. Yeah. Because, you know, as soon as Carol and Dee talk about them on the podcast, people are going to sell out of the seeds, you know. Sure, they are. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Next quote. What is one to say about June, the time of perfect young summer? the fulfillment of the promise of the earlier months, and with as yet no sign to remind one that its fresh young beauty 
will ever fade. Gertrude Jekyll, the famous British garden designer and author. We don't want to think about June days going away. That's what, no, for some reason, that's what our quotes seem to be about. Yeah, we don't want that, that, that moment of time where everything is still beautiful and green. In fact, one of my friends, she wrote yesterday on Facebook, she shared all these pictures and she said, everyone take a moment to say goodbye to my beautiful garden before the heat gets it. (laughs) I (laughs) I had to laugh. So on the bookshelf this week, in our continuing discussion of weeds, this is a book that we found at our library called Wild About Weeds by Jack Wallington. And we have linked to it on bookshop.org and Amazon. So Carol wrote, it's been a good year for weeds. All that rain. Yeah. Yeah. So you tell me first what you think about the book, and then I'll tell you what I think about it. So I thought the book was kind of interesting. And there's some things we should remember that this guy is British and he's writing this from a British garden perspective. Right. So I I think he makes a valid point that there are some weeds that actually do well in a garden and you shouldn't get all weirded out. He does list invasive weeds that you shouldn't grow, which I'm, I'm 100% with him on that. And in fact, I made notes that before anybody decides to let a particular weed have its way forever, you should check your invasive weed list on your state website. Every state has one. And uh, we're going to link to Dee's article about identifying invasives. So we don't want to be growing invasives. And we also don't want to have weeds in our garden because we're lazy. So I think this is weeds with intent. Yes, I would say it's weeds with intent. And it's also, he's making a case partially for wildflowers. Yes. Because in the past, when people were super vigilant with chemical controls, they um, there weren't a lot of native wildflowers or other weeds. And now that people have decided, oh, those simple flower structures like umbels or stru- or like your like when all of your vegetable garden goes to seed. Right. Those are very beneficial to small pollinators. And so he's sort of making a plea for that too. And we have to remember he's in England. So stuff that isn't invasive in England might be extremely invasive here, like purple loose strife. That yeah, was one. I was like, on oh, do my, not plant. oh my gosh, no. Please, no one ever plant that. So I thought you could use, I had really mixed feelings about this book and I read it on the way home from Big Cedar and Bill and I talked about it until Bill's eyes started to close and veer off the road as he was veering off the road. (laughs) And then I I realized I was boring the heck out of him. But um, my thing was, you know, caution. Approach this book with caution and maybe use it in the United States. And maybe use it as a way to identify some of the weeds in your garden. And he also has good eradication principles because he talks about root structure and how tap roots, you have to eradicate a certain way. And so that for that, it was really good. Yeah. Now, I will say I took great uh, umbrage that he listed the violet as a weed. I knew you were going to do that. 
Was it the dog tooth violet <laughs> that he was having issues with? And I don't know. There's so many violets. I think just just common blue violets, and many people here think of them as weeds. And then there are those of us who think they're very pretty. They're easy to grub out when you don't want them. Yeah. He listed the everlasting sweet pea. Have you ever planted everlasting sweet pea? I have not. I did not. I was Lathrop, not familiar with that plant. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with it because I planted it once. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was a mistake. That comes up every year, and I'm pulling it out and pulling it out. And it, it looks like a very lovely pink sweet pea, but it's yeah. a perennial, and it has no scent, and it will simply take over. So it has its place. If I had a wild hedgerow or something, I might allow it to stay. It's not native. No, nope. said purple wood sorrel, which I do think is a pretty plant. Oxalis corniculata variety, variety. atropurpurea. Right, purple I have it foliage, too. bright green, bright yellow flowers. I think that is pretty, and I have some of that, and I let it stay. It lives here. I mean, it, it's been here before me, so it's going to still live here. And then he talked about oxide daisies, which is Leucanthemum yep. vulgare. Um, I don't know if I have any oxide daisies anywhere here. I do, but They're I do have I do have common fleabane. Oh yeah, I went out the other day, and I I mean to write a blog post about it even before I got into this book. I had this beautiful stand of of fleabane in my perennial border, mm-hmm. and I thought that looks pretty. And there wasn't there's not much else blooming. Kind of you know it's one of those lulls in the blooming. It's in between, and yeah. I uh, I I pulled it all out because there's no way it would. It's so easy to pull out. It's just like one stem comes up and it's got a flower on the top, and I just. But it has out. a billion seeds, which is the a point bazillion. of weeds. I weeds yeah. either spread really well by, you know, rhizotoma stems, or they spread really well by seed, or they do both. And he he lists Rebecca in there. And he loves Rebecca, yeah. and I love some of the Rebeccas too. I do not love Rebecca Goldsturm anymore. I do tell people with dry gardens, yeah, go ahead and plant it. It'll be great for you. People with wet gardens, no, you do not want it because it spreads every which way it can possibly spread and, and chokes everyone else out. And that would be my cautionary tale about all weeds. Fleabane's easy to pull out, and you will have it forever. But you can decide where you want it, right? Yeah. Rebecca, no, you cannot. Purple loose drive, I used to have a long, long time ago, um, but eventually I felt guilty and pulled it out because even though I didn't see it spreading anywhere here into the woods, the thought of it spreading into the woods terrified me for other people. And for and that's the issue. That's the biggest issue of all is that you don't want it to crowd out plants that are native to the U.S. Right. Now, and I have will. all over my garden... Uh, Aquilegia vulgaris, which is the European columbine. It's mm-hmm. everywhere. And it just, I, it's not, I mean, it just pulls up everywhere. So I'm letting them go to seed because I'm saving some seeds for people. But I was at garden club this morning and this lady says, how do I get rid of all that columbine? And I said, well, you can just pull it out. She says, well, I want the flowers. I says, then just leave it. It doesn't make that big a mess. Right. And I think if they're, um, in the English gardens, they were talking about robins something. I'd have to look it up again, but it was wild robin or something. And so they were discussing how it is a really great one like that. It's a weed, but it does really well in their gardens. And for me, common fleabane is kind of like that. And 
There's there's that other, and I should have looked it up. There's that other weed that's a native to the U.S., and it comes up. I'll have to look it up, maybe for next time. Anyway, it has beautiful foliage that turns golden and orange in the fall, and it looks really great right next to all your cultured plants, and it doesn't hurt anything. Lamb's Quarter? It is not Lamb's Quarter, although I have that too. Who doesn't have lamb's quarter? Although the purple lamb's quarter is quite pretty and I planted it once, but it didn't come back. So Uh. there's some weeds that are okay. They're well behaved and they don't cause any problems. And then there's other weeds like that one we were discussing last year that came in recently into the United States and it is all over my weed. Oh, I hate that stuff because it has so many seeds and it starts seed making seeds at such a small size there's nothing you can do. So, I would say about this book, which I will quote again, I where is it? It went away. Okay. A Wild About Weeds by Jack Wallington. Proceed with caution. It's not a bad book. It's just No, I enjoyed it. It was fun to read. Very good. All right, you have the next quote. All man has to do to cooperate with the big forces, the sun, the rain, the growing urge, seeds sprout, stems grow, leaves spread in the sunlight, man plants, weeds, cultivates, and harvests. It sounds simple, and it is simple, with the simplicity of great truths, Hal Borland. And that brings us to our dirt, which I actually provided this week. You did provide this week. I'll tell you what, everybody got a rush to... Durant, Oklahoma, for the big magnolia capital of the world. So the people who founded Durant, um, they were from Georgia. And they um, they wanted to bring a little of Georgia with them. So they brought Magnolia Grandiflora, which is the southern magnolia. I have one. And I do not. Yeah, they don't always, they don't grow too far north. This is about their northern range. Anyway, they brought a bunch of them, made a tree line. Other people planted them too. So apparently Durant is just full of magnolias. And I watched, and we should link to it. I watched a really good episode of news. Um, why Oklahoma is a great state. It's a great state or what? I think is what it's called. Anyway, long story short, this guy was hilarious. And he was like, well, basically we had all of these, so we might as well do something with them. So they, <laughs> but I'm reading the show notes. And the other thing about this town, D, they're all from Georgia. They have the world's largest peanut monument, but there are two other cities, one in Texas and one in Ashburn, Ashburn, Georgia, who also mm-hmm. claim to have the world's largest peanut monument. I'm sorry. Someone needs to figure out which one of these is actually bigger than the others. So we can get this settled. Three towns cannot all have the world's largest peanut monument. And I'm not too worried about them and their peanut monument. I just really care about their Magnolia Grandiflores. Anyway, the festival was last week. Sorry, we didn't give it to you ahead of time. But go go to our show notes. Look up the link. It's a pretty charming story how it all started out. And it was fun. Yeah, and Magnolia Grandiflora is not a tree that grows in Indiana. Although I do know where one is up the road that I've watched it for years. It doesn't get very big and it's survived everything so far. And, you know, it's getting a little bit bigger. And so there, it's not going to get a lot of bloom though. They never bloom a lot, but here they bloom like crazy. But can I tell you a funny story about Magnolias real quick? Yeah. I was down in Texas and I was down in, um, down by Houston and I was in a place called Sugarland 
Okay. And Sugarland, Texas yeah. is so called because they made sugar there. And, um, it's a neat little place and they've redone all the houses. And if you ever get a chance to go to Sugarland, it's awesome. But I was with somebody and they were taking me on a small tour and they have this one street where everyone has a magnolia tree in their yard. And it is, it is exquisite when they are all blooming and it smells delightful because magnolia grandiflora smells like lemons, like the best scent of lemons. Right. And so it, the whole place was a buzz. The trees were beautiful. It was great. But a guy who lives on the street who showed it to me, he said, they drive us nuts because they drop those great big leathery leaves and yep. you got, and you got to rake them up because you can't just blow them because they don't blow. So he said they, they drive us crazy, but there's a thing in the covenants that says that we have to keep, you have to have a magnolia tree in your front yard. Really? And he goes, so we have a love hate relationship with our magnolia trees. I can imagine, which reminds me, my sister was telling me that down in New Orleans, where her daughter lives, she says it's against the law to cut down a bald cypress tree. They're protected. And that might be true because, yeah. And some people have a bald cypress if it's really near the house. You know, it causes those knees that kind of come up from the roots. Yeah, it makes knobs. Yeah. Those knobs come up and try to buckle up under the floorboards of the house. Yeah, and they're a real problem on sidewalks, too. And so they try to grow a different kind of cypress that doesn't have the knobby knees. But, yes, it is a, a very popular tree down there. Yes. But anyway, we, we uh, digress from magnolias. Yeah, they can be a pain, all that leathery leaf. Yeah, mine is in the lower pasture over by the beehive, which the bees love it. And actually, the funny part about that is when I planted it a thousand years ago, really 30, 32, 31 years ago, I planted it near my septic tank, which you are not supposed to do. But you know what? That plant did just fine, and so did the septic tank until like last year. <laughs> and it was really old anyway, so we had to relocate our whole septic system. I also realized that I built the greenhouse on top of it. Sometimes I don't think these things out. Let's move on. Hey, you know, it happens. I'll do a quote and then we'll go to our rabbit holes. It was much pleasanter at home, thought poor Alice, when one wasn't always growing larger and smaller and being ordered about by mice and rabbits. I almost wish I hadn't gone down the rabbit hole and yet and yet. Lewis Carroll. <laughs> That's awesome. So tell us about your rabbit hole. So I went down the rabbit hole and found another lost lady of garden writing be- because on my Aunt Dimony books, I'm ready for the 12th book or the 13th book. Somebody has it checked out. And so I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. I'm like, oh, I got time. I'll find Dorothy Giles is her name. And she wrote a book called The Little Kitchen Garden, which is part of those little garden series. And I didn't yeah, think I, cool. I wrote a blog post and I will put a link to it so people can read. I didn't think I'd find out a lot about her, but I found out quite a bit about her. And then I started reading the, um, in the little kitchen garden and on the chapter of herbs, there's an old recipe. I'll tell you what it is, D. And, and I quote, and there is an old recipe dating back to the days of Shakespeare for an oil of roses and marigolds in which are to be steeped buds of hollyhocks, young hazel, and flowers of thyme gathered near the side of the hill where fairies used to be, which if applied to the eyelids would enable one to see the little folk. 
I didn't, I've never seen anything like that. So Dorothy Giles, I found her. She was actually a writer. She used to work for McCall magazine back yeah, in the twenties. Mm-hmm. She worked for Cosmopolitan in the thirties. I don't think she ever married, but I, uh, I will direct people to my blog post and they can read the rest about her. But so I went down the rabbit hole after Dorothy Giles and found a recipe. Yeah, I just want to point out in that recipe, um, they don't mean to use marigolds like we have in the United States. They mean to use calendula. That's true. And what's in what's interesting about this oil of roses and marigolds is that the the oil of roses and then calendula. Calendula is a soothing thing for the skin, right? And right. So is rose oil, and then hollyhocks. I don't know what that would have to do with anything, but I know that hazel has, you know, astringent qualities. Right. And of course, thyme is good for you because it's astringent. So it's kind of an interesting little recipe, even if you take out the fairies. It's only interesting if you keep the fairies in, though. And nobody, please, don't anybody try this recipe. We don't know anything else about it. And don't put them on your eyelids. I think that might hurt with the hazel. Anyway, you want to hear about mine? I do. So, my goodness, I finished that book that we did last time about butterflies. What was the name of that book? The Language of Butterflies. The Language of Butterflies. That Language of Butterflies book was so good that I could not put it down. And I read it, you know, I was I was over halfway finished when we talked about it last week. And I sat on Friday morning before I had to go to the ladies' luncheon. Yes, they still have a ladies' luncheon at this thing. Did you and, have to wear white gloves? Um, no, but there was a time when we had to wear dresses. And one time, this is how far, how long I've been going to this conference. Way back in the day, 33 years ago, there were, la- we used to go to a place called Shangri-La, which was in Oklahoma. And there was a ladies course and a men's course. It was a blue course and a gold course. And the best course was the gold course, supposedly. Are you the talking about a golf only- course or what? Yes, golf course. There's a reason for that. The ladies could only play on the blue course. All right. This is the, I mean, I'm not that old, but we had this. So the point of this is you asked me if we wore white gloves. No, we did not, but we wore dresses. And two of the ladies had just finished their round of golf in time to come in for the deal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The guy who was in charge of the deal at the time, I'm not going to say his name, he told them that they were not allowed to enter because they were wearing shorts. (gasps) The scandal of it all, my goodness. (laughs) And the two ladies told him, because they were quite dynamic ladies, and they were quite a bit older than me. I was really a youngin' then. And they, they told him where to get off, and they did not go that day to the ladies luncheon, but we're still doing those. But while I was waiting to go and get dressed for the ladies luncheon, I was reading this book and I found myself going down lots of butterfly rabbit holes because of it. Cause I kept looking up information that she would refer to, but I was also glad to see that some of the butterflies she listed and also Oklahoma, Oklahoma was a major part of the book because I've told people we're on the butterfly highway and we're a big, big part of it, especially the monarch migration. And this was just fascinating because she went to a piece of land that is still owned by an Indian tribe in Oklahoma. And it's an original piece of prairie. 
I know. I she talked about that, and I thought that has to be a fascinating p- place that. You know, it's never been tilled under, so this would be what Oklahoma looked like to the first people that arrived. Right. And we do have the Tallgrass Prairie Preserve, which is pretty pristine, too. And because the people who owned that land always burned it, and it was just rangeland. So they never, ever tilled it. They didn't use it for farming. But when Bill walked in and I was like, oh, my gosh, the Cayuga tribe still owns this land. I said, I bet that land is rocky and couldn't be plowed. And I was right because she told us in the next few pages. Anyway, I just going to give that book a plug again. It sent me down so many rabbit holes and it made me realize that the entire world is knit by circadian rhythms. True that. And that That was was really cool. Very cool. So what are you going to do this week to get through? So the Garden Commissions, I am going to work on surviving the first week of the 90s. We had some rain over the weekend, about an inch all said and done, so it won't be terribly dry, which is good. Uh, I should have pulled out the last of the lettuce this morning, but instead I went to Garden Club. I'm going to do that, plant some more rosy green beans, thin out my zinnias a little bit, maybe trim some shrubs if I can get out there early, 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 and then the most horrible horrible thing i have to do every year is trim back that amsonia which the sap is like glue and i have a pair of pants and a t-shirt ruined from that last year i will don those again and go out there and i call it my my amsonia outfit and cut all that back i'm gonna mow i'm gonna look for lightning bugs and you know summertime and the living is easy and hot So I'm going to keep everything watered and I'm going to check, check on all the drip irrigation systems and make sure that they're still working, that no electricity, no electrical bolt, you know, lightning bolt hit any of my timers or anything like that. Cause I've been out of town and I'm probably going to water the pots on the deck for the second time during the day, during these next few days, because the humidity is so high that the heat is way beyond what it normally would be right now. And when I do this, I go out very early in the morning and water, and then I check things again just before sundown, which is almost 9 p.m. here now. And then also I'm going to repot tomorrow morning. I'm going to get up early, get out there, repot those two plants that were knocked over by the deer or whatever it was, and get them settled back into their space. Hey, D. Yeah. In my neck of the woods, at 9.30 last night, it was still almost daylight because we're so far west in the eastern time zone it by the time we get to the end of the week the summer solstice it'll be like nine forty-five, almost 10 o'clock and it'll still be enough daylight that you could finish mowing the grass or something it's crazy so that's like um that's like when you're in england in the summertime it is light until 11 p.m i believe it because they're so far north It's crazy. And that's why in the summer, they're so nutty for summertime, because in the winter, it is so very dark there for so very long. I can imagine. That is it, Dee. We want to thank you for listening to The Garden Angelist. If you like our podcast, please tell your friends about us and also hit the subscribe button so you don't miss anything. And if you listen to Apple Podcasts, we love a five-star review that helps us get noticed by others. Could you also share our podcast with your gardening friends? Word of mouth is still the best way to get the word out there. Yes, and be sure and check out our show notes and our new show notes on thegardenangelist.substack.com. 
plus links to our own websites are on there. Um, if you want to help support us, use the affiliate links. If you buy something after clicking through on them, we are in a small commission and it costs you nothing. It was lovely to chat with all of you over the garden gate today. Bye until next week. Bye everybody.